morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's really great to see you all again, actually. Um, if you haven't been, I haven't been here for a morning service since before Christmas. Um, so, uh, and there seems to be, as I came in, a number of new faces uh, that I haven't, uh, that I don't know. Um, if I've not met you yet, please grab me after the service. I'd love a chance to meet you. Um, as you heard, my name's Darren. Um, a few weeks back, I took up a pastoral role here, um, but my one of my key roles is to be over at the Aubrey Congregation on a Sunday morning. Um, so you won't see me here in the morning very often, um, but I still want to get to know the morning congregation, so make sure you grab me afterwards. Um, as you know, we're, uh, we've just started last week to uh, look at the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to do a whole series on it for the next uh, I think there's, there's another five or six weeks to go. Um, to start off with today, I wanted to introduce you to someone. Um, now, if you've been around this church for a little while, you might have met this little guy. Um, he, he came along to a few church events a few years ago. He was a bit of a celebrity in the Wodonga and Albury dog-owning world he, because he spent a lot of time at the Wodonga Dog Park and uh, there aren't very many dogs around Aubrey Wodonga like him. Um, this little fella was originally Eliza Adam Thwaites' dog, Jack. Um, now, Eliza adopted Jack from a farmer who couldn't take care of him anymore. Um, and Eliza had him for about three years. Then, just before Eliza and David moved overseas, there were a few of us around at their house helping to fix up the garden and a few other things to get it ready for renting while they were overseas. And, um, and Jack was running around the yard. And uh, I'm not sure what, what made me ask, but I asked David, um, who's going to look after Jack while, you know, what's happening with him while you're away? And I found out that this had actually become a real problem for them. You see... Uh, Eliza was getting quite stressed because they hadn't managed to find him a home. Um, they couldn't find anybody who would take him. And with only a few days left to go, um, they, they needed a new home for him. So I said to them, look, don't get stressed about it. I will look after him and I will find him a new home. Well, wouldn't you know it, that home ended up being my garden, um, my beanbag, my couch... And my doona. Um, <laughs> Jack was a great little buddy, um, but there was one problem. His name was Jack. You see, my grandfather's name was Jack, and I can't have a dog named after my grandfather. Um, that was going to have to change. So what do you call an Italian greyhound who is low to the ground, super lightweight, a bit of a show pony, and he runs like the wind. Well, you call him Enzo, as in Enzo Ferrari, don't you? <laughs> um, I think it suits him, and um, I think he looks more like an Enzo than a Jack. Um, and most people who met Enzo seem to think that was the case. Um, isn't it funny how we tend to associate names with things or with a sound or, um, or with places or whatever it might be, um, we tend to, uh, tend to connect things to names. I think that, uh, that when our good friend Shakespeare uh, said, 
what's in a name, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Well, I'm not sure that Juliet was telling the truth. Um, would it really smell as sweet? I mean, if, it was, if a rose wasn't called a rose, if it was called something like, I don't know, a snot flower, <laughs> would it really smell as sweet? I'm not convinced. Names are important and it's always been that way. If you think right back to Genesis, God gives Adam his name. Yes, God creates man, but he also gives him an individual name, Adam. Um, it can pretty much be translated to the word for earth. These days we'd probably call him Dusty. Um, that's where he came from. He, he is unlike the rest of creation. So God gives him a personal name. He was made from the dust of the earth and then with the breath of God, he's brought to life and um, he's now spiritual and made for eternity. Later, it's actually Adam that gives the woman her name. To start with, she's just known as woman. It means taken from man. And later, they both sin and they're cast out of the Garden of Eden. And the woman still has no individual name at that point. In 2014, in a very famous speech by the UK's chief rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, he described it this way. He said, Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. For Adam... She was a type, not a person. He gave her a noun, not a name. What's more, he defines her as a derivative of himself, something taken from man. She's not yet for him someone other, a person in her own right. She's merely a kind of reflection of himself. As long as the man thought he was immortal, he ultimately needed no one else. But now he knew he was mortal. One day he would return, he would die and return to dust. There was only one way in which something of himself uh, would live on. Uh, and that would be if he had a child. But he could not have a child on his own. For that he needed a wife. She alone could give birth. She alone could mitigate his mortality and it's not because she was like him but precisely because she was unlike him at that moment she ceased to be for him a type and became a person in her own right a person has a proper name and that's what he gave her the name shava eve meaning giver of life she gets a name she's no, not a noun from the very outset, names have been important. A name is, is recognition. It's a description. But it's more than just a tag. It denotes importance and value. It says something of the person's origins or their story, their character or perhaps their parents' hope seen in this new light. A name is something, it tells us something about a person's true essence of self, or at least it did back then in biblical times. 
And when God called people to a different path, he would often change their name to reflect that transformation. Think about Abraham, Abram, sorry, who was, whose name means exalted father. He became Abraham, father of a multitude. Sarai, meaning princess, became Sarah, a different type of princess. Jacob, who grasped at the heel, uh, becomes Israel, the one who strives with God. Naomi, meaning the pleasant one. She becomes Mara, meaning the bitter one when her husband and sons die in the story of Ruth. And then we all know about Simon, who is the one that he is, becomes Peter, the rock. These days, we're more concerned that a child's name sounds good. It rolls off the tongue. You know, um, the name has, is maybe completely original um, or it can't be distorted into some weird name which is going to, you know, they're going to get bullied and it's going to curse them for life. Um, we're less concerned about the meanings of names. And perhaps that's why when we pray uh, the Lord's Prayer we, and we recite the line, hallowed be your name, we miss the depth of importance that lies in those four little words. Because hallowed isn't a word we use very much anymore, is it? It's, um, and when we do, we tend to use it to describe places like the MCG. Um, the media pretends that the MCG, particularly the Centre Square, is like some sort of holy of holies. Um, when you go and do the tour, you're not even allowed to walk on the ground. But the MCG is also a place where the crowd is abusive and often drunk. Um, the footy players spit on the ground during the, during the matches. I'm pretty sure that that's not the behaviour we're being exhorted to present to, the, to our Father God. Perhaps when you uh, hear the word hallowed, you think of places like the War Memorial. That might be a little bit closer to what uh, the prayer is talking about, maybe. Um, certainly, I was actually up in Canberra, went to the War Memorial just a few weeks ago. Um, and most of the people were quiet and respectful at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. But not everyone. Even the tour guides were talking over the top of each other. And this honour guard that you see here, well, that's not normally there. That's only there for special occasions. Funnily enough, even in that photo, there are people having their selfie taken. If, um, if that's what you think of when, you, when we're trying to understand hallowed, um, we're probably missing something. What does Jesus mean when he instructs us to pray, hallowed be thy name? Is it maybe just a prohibition against swearing? Um, if we were to think back to, uh, back to Exodus um, chapter 20, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, then the third of those Ten Commandments is, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Fair, fairly similar. Um, and then Jesus also says something similar. He says in the uh, statement about the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12, 
that anyone who speaks against a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, neither in this age or the one to come. Well, while many people think that the third commandment is a law against swearing, uh, uh, using the Lord's name in vain, well, the original language actually carries a much, much broader sense. It, the Hebrew has the word shev. Um, it has the concept of, um, of, uh, of perjury uh, in it. Uh, using the Lord's name is therefore to co-opt or to bolster the, uh, the strength of an oath. Shev is, a, is also used as a prohibition against using God's name in magical spells or practices. It seems that, it, that uh, in these ways people are attempting to bottle up God and use him like a genie to control him and his power, um, the authority that resides in his ca character. The, the word shev also means to profane or to damage or bring damage to the name or to be hypocritical and misrepresent God, his word or his character. And likewise, the word to take, nasa, has the meaning of to take away from, uh, to degrade or make lesser. So the third commandment uh, is far more than just don't swear using God's name. It's far more. Um, given the trajectory of the, of the, the Ten Commandments to that point, it's not surprising. Um, the, the, the first is, you shall have no other gods. The second is, you shall not make other gods. Um, well, it's not really surprising that the third commandment is about holding God in his rightful place and not trying to control him or belittle him, his position or his glory. His name, his essence, his character is held in reverence. It's holy, it's to be separate, uh, it's to be hallowed. Not MCG hallowed, but truly respected because it, in calling on his name, we're actually calling on everything that he is. So what is the name of God? Now, some would go with the simple biblical answer. You know, his name's Yahweh or, you know, the mashed up Latin version, Jehovah. Um, but God is actually called many names throughout the Bible. A guy named Dr. Ralph Wilson wrote a book called Names and Titles of God. And he suggests that there's 120 separate different names of God throughout the Bible and there's about a hundred more variations on those names. Each of them describes a separate aspect of God's character and personhood. Names like El Elyon, God no tie, El Rai, God of seeing, El Olam, the everlasting eternal God and El Shaddai, the, the God Almighty. With that many names, it's probably not surprising that when Moses is talking to God at the burning bush, in Exodus chapter 3, we find God said, I will be with you and this will be a sign to you that it is I that have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to Israel and, they say, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. 
And they ask, well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you're to say to the, to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The name I am, it's, when you think about it, it's, it's all-encompassing, isn't it? It's, um, the name includes every aspect of God that we can imagine. It, it's, it has no beginning and it, it implies no end. It has no limits. It, it doesn't change. It, it's complete. It's a name forever, from generation to generation. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're declaring that every aspect of God is holy, powerful and sacred. We're declaring him as king, as ruler, infinite, timeless, above and beyond and in some sense, untouchable. But he is also, as David explored last week, our father. Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. He's close and knowable, guiding and holding and protecting and training and disciplining. Now, I was trying to get a picture of what this might be and the closest I've got is um, when I was in grade six at, at Nunawading Primary School, my dad came to be a grade six teacher at the same school. He was also the vice principal. He wasn't my classroom teacher. I was in the class across the hall. But being vice principal, it was part of his job to keep all the kids in line. He had a lot of authority. Um, anyone who misbehaved went to his room. But that wasn't the only side to my dad. He was also passionate about sport in particular, coaching athletics, and he was the second man in Australia to ever get a netball umpire's badge. So while he would keep the kids in line, he would also encourage and guide them in their studies and their sports. Our family had this weird rule. Wendy experienced it, I experienced it. And that was that the moment you walked in the gate of the school, he ceased to be dad and he became Mr. Thomas, he would no longer, he would now treat us like all the other kids and we would relate to him as any other teacher. In fact, Wendy was, when I was talking to Wendy about this, she said, yeah, I remember going home and saying to mum, Mr. Thomas said, <laughs> I probably did the same thing. So, but every so often, the rule actually still got broken. Um, he would quietly slip me 20 cents to go and spend at the canteen and I would accidentally call him dad in front of the other kids. The funny thing was that that embarrassed me more than it embarrassed him. Um, I think that relationship is probably not a bad picture of what God is for us. With, without the rules about the school fence, um, he's both daddy, Abba, God, and he's also at the same time Yahweh, the Almighty God. It is this very uniqueness of God that we're recognising when we, when we use his name. We worship the Father by name and, and, 
and it's in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, that we're redeemed. And it's his Holy Spirit that we carry. As we follow Christ and allow his Spirit to continually refine us, um, we begin to exhibit and are transformed to become more Christ-like. So this is all very good. Um, We pray, hallowed be thy name. Um, We get that... uh, we get that it's got a deeper, broader meaning than the Sunday school version. Just don't use Jesus' name like a swear word. Um, but what does it actually look like? How do we really hallow his name? Well, in the book of Ezekiel, God is speaking through his prophet, his, to his people. Now, this is just before the vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones uh, that God brings back to life. It's a picture of God bringing his people new life and he re, he's rebuilding them and he's, he's breathing new life into them. But before that, in chapter 36, God's speaking about how his people need to be different. How in the past, they've actually profaned his name by misrepresenting him and not living as his people, his agents or ambassadors here on earth. He is calling them them back to himself to be different from the nations around them, to be set apart for him instead of bringing his name shame, um, that they would be holy because his name is holy. God wants them, um, them and those who say they belong to him to be holy. It's by their actions and their unwavering commitment to holiness that they actually stop profaning his name. In this chapter, um, we, we find that God washes them clean. He, he gives them a new heart. He says it's a heart made, uh, not made of stone, but a living heart, a beating heart. He places his spirit on them and he redeems them as his people. And when this is accomplished, it says... I will show my glory in their midst. So it's not hard to see that these passages are sort of connected. God is concerned about his people. He wants them to carry his name, to represent him in his fullness, to live empowered through his spirit. He won't abide those who purport to be his bring disgrace to his name. Those who try to wield his name like some weapon or a magic spell. Those who who think that they can contain God and use him at their own pleasure. Those who promise to be his and his alone, uh, but who flirt with other gods. To do any of these things is not to see God for who he really is. It reduces God to Plato, some, someone we can, we can shape to our own will. And that's not how we hallow God. We hallow his name by living both individually and also as a collective, as his spirit-empowered people. So wrapped up in these four little words, hallowed be your name. 
we're actually declaring that he is truly God, that his name is holy and it's worthy. We're committing to following him, to being marked with his name and carrying his spirit into the world. We're committing to be his agents, his hands and his feet for healing and justice and the restoration of a broken world. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are actually vowing to be his holy people. That we want to bring glory and honour to his name. Let's pray about that right now. Father God, Abba Father, we worship you as the creator of all things and we, we live